Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober. The podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi there and welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. Uh, And so this week we're delighted to welcome our friend of the show, um, Scott. Uh, Scott is known um, on Instagram as the boy who drank too much. Um, Scott is a great friend of ours. He came to our first ever meetup, so we'll probably talk about that in a moment. But um, it's been great to sort of get to know him over the last year and we're really delighted that he could join us um, to share his story. So um, Scott is a sober activist. He's also a writer for the uh, magazine Outlife, which is a charity um, magazine that writes on health and well-being for the LGBTQI plus uh, community. And um, yeah, so we're delighted you're here, Scott. So how are you doing? I'm really good. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I think it's going to be a really good podcast episode. Of course it is. You're on it. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> it won't be if I start singing Chains again. <laughs> Scott's never heard of Tina Arena. That's just a shocker. <laughs> well, what no one listening to the podcast knows is that we've already been talking for like half an hour. <laughs> so, yeah. None of it's captured. <laughs> We had such a bad, well, I mean, I think it's probably because I was in the van again trying to escape. And <laughs> just the inter- you know, it just wasn't happening. It was like Zoom. It was like, how kind of useless do you want to be trying to get to grips with all of the different the technology? <laughs> Come on, we're resilient beings. We work yeah. it out. Yeah, yeah. That's um, true. How are you doing, Kate? Um, yeah, I am. I'm fighting the good fight, man, and I'm managing to find humour even in the darkness. Good for you, dude. <laughs> that's quite that's quite like um, cryptic, wasn't it? But if if I was to answer honestly and go on for another hour, you'd just be like, ah, just cryptic, yeah. love of God. So, <laughs> how are you, man? Um, I'm pretty good. Um, I am a bit tired. So <laughs> in the last is this the, is this the 50th episode? It actually oh, might be. Um, I think it might be, which is exciting. Oh, but um, that's yeah, quite oh, auspicious, and... Scott. I know. Yeah. It's the special one because it's your sorry, man. I've just like talked over you because you were <laughs> saying it's going to be your sobriversary, and it's the 50th episode. It is. That's crazy. Yeah. Sorry, man. Yeah. How are you? Love? Yeah, no, that's fine. I'm tired, but I'm fine. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's gonna be your one year anniversary, Scott. So this will go out on Friday. So your anniversary is the Saturday, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it's um yeah, I think I was saying earlier, it's kind of a really weird serendipitous thing because um love sober was one of the things that kind of turned made me turn the corner and get sober eventually um and then now one year on i get to sit and talk to you as friends which is even nicer like that's just really cool and lovely amazing so nice so did you listen to the podcast before you stopped then yeah yeah so yeah so sammy um my friend sammy who you guys have met um, yeah. she re- she recommended Love Sober to me because I found her I, I knew her for years we used to party together in London and I saw that she was um, she had gone alcohol 
free and we're doing mindful drinking. And obviously, when you're in the throes of moderation and in all that pain, um, all of a sudden you see the word sober pop up, and and it, especially from someone that you know, and you start to realise that it's possible. And mm. so um, I slid into her DMs and was like, uh, I need you to tell me how you're doing this. And she was mm. like, right, here's what you do. You need to listen to Love Sober. You need to, you need to buy the unexpected joy of being sober um, and, and just have a read and listen. And I did that. Weirdly, I can actually tell you that I listened to um, the Love Sober podcast while I was walking past Buckingham Palace in London on a Sunday afternoon. And I sat and it was, it must have been like this August or September, so it was quite hot. And I just sat down and I remember thinking, I don't think I can do this. These women are amazing and I don't know how I'm going to get there. And this just, I, this just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And it took a little bit longer, but eventually I did get there. <laughs> amazing. I feel a bit emotional. I know. Someone does listen to our wafflings on, which is amazing. <laughs> And he was in the most royal of settings, like outside of Palace. Yeah, queen. Last queen. <laughs> we just had to get that in there, really, didn't we? I knew it was going to get in there at some point. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so we'll dive into your story, if that's all right. Um, we always sort of start by, um, yeah, if you could explain a little bit what brought you to the decision to go alcohol-free, if you could um, tell us a bit about your drinking story yeah um I think kind of kind of going backwards by the by the end I was in so much um mental and physical pain uh as I mentioned a second ago thinking about moderation and um or I can't have any more than any more drinks than my friends have or can I go to the bar yet oh no I can't because um, this person's mid-conversation and, and no one around you can see that these things are going on in your head but that's all that was going on in, in, my, in my head at that point especially towards the end um, and knowing that my drinking there was something wrong and knowing that it was alcohol that was the problem but not having there was it wasn't accessible sobriety wasn't accessible to me or at least I thought it wasn't um, and I think one of the reasons why I do what I do now, which we'll go into a little bit later, but is that for me, there was no in the middle. There was either you're a drinker, and I know that you guys have spoken about this in the kind of grey area drinking kind of mm. podcast. Um, you're either a drinker or you're an alcoholic. And mm. there isn't anything in between that's ever publicised, or there wasn't until probably maybe a year or so ago. Mm. Um, and so when I was trying to, to think about sobriety, all of a sudden I was like, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to allow myself to be labelled an alcoholic, um, which is a which is a barrier in itself. And, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. But mm. playing it kind of backwards, um, I was just, just um, 16, 17, started drinking um, as, as any other normal teenager does in the UK. Like it wasn't anything ridiculous. Um, it would have been like a Bacardi Breezer or a WKD Blue or something at a party and and that was that was where it stopped and, and that was fine. But I think for me, um, what the biggest difference between kind of maybe my drinking um, and others was I discovered alcohol just at the point that I'd decided to come out to my family um, as being gay. And I think that when you are holding shame in any way um, and you discover something that allows you to not be ashamed of yourself anymore, 
for what for whatever reason you're ashamed subconsciously you start to use it for the wrong reasons and I don't really think that that manifested itself for actually a really long time I do think that it was probably until I got to about maybe 18 that I started to notice the problems um but because I was like 18 or 19 I just thought that everyone was the same and the situations that I got myself in were no different to the situations that everyone else did and now when I think back to some of those situations I mean I can't I probably wouldn't talk about most of them on this podcast for fear that my parents would know them and that's quite how bad some of them are um Mm. and um so but in the same vein I do believe that there needs to be a bit of transparency because um people need to understand that these these are big issues um so yeah and I think I got to 20 I think it was about 25 and when I got to 25 I was like yeah definitely the drink this is that's that's what's doing this and it was my mental health that was the problem it was my physical health that was the problem I couldn't concentrate at work I was underperforming at work um and every part of who I was was taking a battering in some in some kind um I've spoken on pre- on quite a few occasions about the amount of debt that I racked up um very irresponsibly either directly at a bar or because I was hungover and thought it was acceptable to spend 20 pounds on lunch in prep every day mm. of the week so it, you, when you factor all of that in on top of the fact that I would probably buy myself a new outfit to go out and then I would spend however much money on a night out and a taxi home. You're you're looking in the hundreds to two hundreds at night sometimes. Mm. Um, and when you add that up over the course of however many years, you can you can imagine that I am at home right now at the age of 29 and I'm paying that debt off. Um, and, and that's why, because mm. that's, for me, the debt is the final kind of um, my kind final kind of hold uh, that alcohol has over me and that's why I'm here to get rid of it (laughs) I think you know there's like elements of that that definitely that kind of late teenage drinking and like you like you said so god it kind of made me really feel then when you said about the kind of shame and anything that takes that kind of shame away it's like I remember saying that I suddenly felt happy when I, and then I was like, oh, I'm drunk. And it was like, that was the connection. It was like, oh, that equals that. And then I used that to do that ever since, you know? Yeah. And it works for a bit until it doesn't work, you know? It's mad, yeah. It just goes on and on until, like you say, one day you're like, oh, no, actually, that's what's causing me these problems. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to, we, I mean, we talked about this before that we wanted to talk a bit about shame. And obviously, this, it's something that, features very much in my story as well and I mean I think what people you know what what happens is that you get into a shame cycle whereas you know that the reason why you drank perhaps was based subconsciously I mean I, I guess that's retrospectively now that you're looking at it and going okay you know I was ashamed and and therefore I was doing that but then what happens is you you're creating behavior you're creating chaos essentially which makes you feel more ashamed than you drink to, you know, and it's that kind of spiral that keeps going. And it's a way of kind of beating yourself up. I mean, it certainly was for me, you know, I had very low self-worth and self-esteem because I had shame. Therefore I drank and punished myself, which, you know, in turn caused more shame. And, you know, and that's, and, and I think for me, one of the biggest gifts about, 
being sober is having pride in myself and pride being proud of my behavior and that kind of upward spiral of self-confidence and self-esteem of like right I make good choices and they you know create more good choices and and I I'm in that upward spiral um so yeah I mean when did you come to this understanding that perhaps shame had been one of the reasons can we say that you drank or part of the story I suppose um <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous but I'm not even joking it was probably only about three or four months ago um, so, uh, again, so one of the things that I've got to say that sobriety, or I've noticed about sobriety, and we'll come back to the same things, but um, the one thing that, that sobriety I've noticed is that, like, there's, if you look in your life, there's always little signs to, to tell you that you should be where you are, that I believe. And um, I was in France at the end of May. Was it the end of May? Maybe the, maybe the middle of May. Um, and I did a BBC Radio 5 interview talking about sobriety. And um, when I did that, it was a real pain in the arse, excuse my French, to, to, to do the interview because it was uh, an hour ahead of my time. Um, and they wanted to tell me about it. They, yeah, <laughs> they, they wanted to record it at like 10 pm, which would have meant me staying up until 11 pm. But anyway, we managed to get it sorted. And um, I did the interview and went to bed, literally just went straight to sleep. Woke up the next morning, I had a DM from um, an, uh, this guy called Matthew Todd, um, who really strangely has written a book called Straight Jacket. And um, the gay sober on Instagram, Lee, our friend, um, yeah. had recommended this book to me. But for whatever reason, I just hadn't gone out and got it. Just just one of those things. And um, Matthew Todd, who's the author of that book, had actually heard me on Radio 5 and messaged me and was like, it's, I'm so pleased that someone else is talking about sobriety and um, we need more voices like yours, especially from the kind of uh, millennial generation. Um, I really think that you would be interested in my book. So I went literally that week and bought that book because I was like, okay, I can't ignore these signs anymore. The reason that I did that radio interview was for this to happen. Mm. Um, and I read that book and I have to say it changed my life because um, it, it was massively... Um, very similar to, to my to my story in terms of that uh, I was really ashamed of who I was for a really long time um, for various reasons um, I think and also it was written by Matthew Todd and he's the he used to be the editor of Attitude and also weirdly he was the editor of Attitude magazine which is a big gay magazine mm -hmm. he was the editor there when I was in fashion PR so I would have actually liaised with his office on multiple occasions to send them fashion um, samples and stuff um, and then even more weirdly he did a he spoke to a couple of people at the book and I knew one of them and so too many signs and too many coincidences mm. um, and so yeah I read this book and it, and it totally changed things to me because I, I for the first time ever understood that not only was I ashamed of me but I was um, probably living in fear and um, I was holding all this angst and anxiety inside because of my sexuality and that's not um that wasn't because I wanted to punish myself it was because I when I grew up I didn't conform or fit into a heteronormative society and until I've started researching about what heteronormativity is um it's you can't actually quite believe that like I would have probably brushed it off and just said oh that's that's bollocks excuse my French um like that's not that's not a that's not applicable, it's not a thing. But actually, like, if you take as an example, so 
average teenager or a heterosexual teenager when they um, have their first relationship or they they're at school and the first thing that parents and grandparents and, and relatives do when you're at a family affair will be like oh have you got a boyfriend or oh have you got a girlfriend because mm. it's just something that people say that's something that culturally we've just grown up and we've said um, now imagine that then that person does get a girlfriend or a boyfriend and they're in a heterosexual relationship and I imagine that most families will open the doors and they will let those people come into their home immediately at maybe 14, 15, 16. Now if you're in a homosexual relationship that doesn't happen. It might do now but it didn't for me and I couldn't do that and I didn't feel comfortable enough to do that for various different reasons and so that's quite a big life affirming or non-affirming yeah. moment yeah. Yeah, it's a big rite of passage that, absolutely. that is celebrated or shunned and it's like well yeah. you're to shut that up exactly you, it either validates that person for who they are at a really critical point yeah. or it dismisses who they are well, and at that yeah. point you start to go down a road of hiding parts of yourself and locking yeah. parts of yourself away without even knowing that you're doing it um, and so if you just take that one event, what, that one life event um, in itself, that's massive and it's fun. Yeah, to, that's, that's enough. Yeah, but then when you add in all the other bits um, that come with being gay or lesbian or trans or, um, or however you identify, um, I think that that's where there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I have to say there's been a lot of improvement in the in how old am I on uh, 29 so in the 14 years since I came out um there's I there's been loads of work that's been done but um for me I could massively relate to Matthew Todd's book because a lot of his the stuff that he wrote about was very relatable in terms of shame and mm. uh, kind of how if you don't conform to heteronormative society it can lead you down that route and uh, you then start to look for validation in all of the wrong things, sex, mm. alcohol, uh, whatever it, it may be, food. Um, some people it's even exercise, like that's why there's quite a, uh, a common theme of lots of gay men have got incredible bodies because they feel like they need to be perfect all the time and the, perfect, and the perfection is this thing, but really it's actually quite toxic to some of them. Um, and and so yeah, it starts to manifest itself in different ways. And, and I use alcohol. Yeah, and I think that's why. I mean, we've talked about it on a you know when we've for social chats as you do with between so sober people, like have a cup of tea and talk some real shit. But um, we've talked about this, you know, and there are some very the experiences of of being a woman and being kind of sexualized or being. Um, yeah shame around the body or about how you look um you know essentially if you're anything that's not white male mm. um you are othered in some way mm. um and you know and there are sort of problems with of obviously with you know sexual violence with bullying with you know all those other things that are um attached to being othered in some way um and it's been really fascinating and you know and, and um upsetting and uh, to sort of really understand for as as a as a heterosexual woman those experiences because 
I, I get it and I can see and you know and I, I hope that yeah my kids don't but I see the same things I mean it has I mean I, I, I catch people I mean French people are terrible for that you know mm. you know have you got a girlfriend like who's your girlfriend who's your boyfriend and I'm like mm, like oh, leave a leave them alone I mean why is this sort of like something that's put on a pedestal as something that's you know very important to be in a relationship or to be attractive to someone and be like you know stop putting them in, pigeonholing them into mm. something when they haven't, you know, let them discover who they want to be, really. So I got, I'm constantly I'm quite, like... You know. I'm quite interested in that that whole... We, you know, we've been looking at that in the book and thinking about shame today mm. and sort of talking about sort of self-compassion being the antidote to shame. And then so I, so I ended up down this research hole uh, looking at the evolutionary theories behind the function of shame, <laughs> again, as you do. And that whole, um, it being a very formative time when the group is very, very important for us. You know, those rites of passage into who we're going to be uh, are so sort of brittle and fragile and, and we mm -hmm. lack so much support in them, I think, in our modern societies. Um, mm -hmm. But then thinking about older generations is probably even worse if you're not heteronormative. Mm -hmm. um, but that feeling of exile and the pain, like I, I can only think, because I, I have a, a profound shame response, which was very linked with my alcohol use. And I realised that what I did, what I ended up doing is it was a, uh, to drink was to shut up that pain. It was to tell that little girl inside to go, just fuck off, shut up, stop making a noise, don't be so, you know, whatever it was, it was just, uh, it was like a self-exile. Yeah, because you lose self-worth, don't you? you? So it's yeah, like... and so that that listening and that self-compassion, that actually, you know, actually connecting with that. that anyway, I'm, ju I'm just kind of mulling it through out loud, but I think there's something about that. I, you know, I you know, I need to be accepted and loved and validated and have us mirrored back in a positive way. Is you know, like like you say, and if we don't, we internalize it and then we turn away from ourselves, which is like the most evil arrow of of all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Somehow, yeah, I don't definitely, yeah. And and I, and I like I can quite honestly say that I was an absolute asshole from eighteen to well. I'd like to say 22 or 23, but it was probably closer to 25 or 26, if I'm being honest, um, and, and just really irresponsible. And um, I don't know, but that's because I created another version of myself, a version of myself that didn't, that couldn't get hurt. Um, mm. And I didn't realise that that's what I was doing um, until very recently. And it's only now that I'm starting to understand and allow myself to connect with the real me and be the real me all the time um and and it's exhausted <laughs> from what it's, it's really exhausting to, 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 to learn who i really am yeah. and to have to accept it and to then live by it it's quite a process and, it, and, it, and mm. it's definitely not over by any means like i'm still learning and, and i don't mean that'll ever change but yeah yeah and i think i mean that's what sort of the brené brown uh, conversation about vulnerability isn't it you know and 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 you're moving away from shame is allowing yourself to be vulnerable and yeah that's it's fucking terrifying and that's why you know I think we're all 
badass uh, because we are <laughs> facing those things um but there is that intrinsic thing of like well you know when you say you were an arsehole I would kind of question that and say I don't think you were I think you were just lost no, and I think <laughs> you were oh, so I, did, I didn't asshole. know you. you're still an arsehole I I was I was such an arsehole <laughs> no I mean I was too I mean we <laughs> yeah I'm just trying to make myself feel better but I know I I do because I know in sort of in some kind of recovery models, you know, there is this kind of repenting in a way. And, you know, you go back and you say sorry to everyone. And, you know, there is quite a lot of shame in the sense of like, you know, you did bad things and now you must, you know, feel bad about Basically. it and make and make amends. And I, I do question that in a way because sort of someone that's gone through from a place of extreme shame, you know, I part of me letting go of shame was to forgive myself and to mm. go you know what Mandy I love you and you were broken for many many reasons um and I've got your back and the past is the past and let's just work from here like I you know so I from a serious point of view you know part of my recovery from shame has been just to go okay I'm just I'm not going to ruminate on those things or what I did or what I said I'm just going to let yeah. it go. Yeah, and I think that the, there's... So, sorry, Scott, this is your interview. Now we're like, rah, 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 and another thing. But that whole, you know, we've talked about some certain recovery models not being gender-friendly. And mm. also to... And and um, it and then being very... It's, he, again, hetero-white male Normative, paradigms yeah. of religions and, and, like, this thing. And... and yeah, for people who have had a, an extreme shame response and had to hide parts of themselves like that, I don't, I think that self-compassion needs to be really written in there, like in a massive way before you do any of the other shit, right? Surely, yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Scott? I think, do you know what? I think that this is, um, yes, I agree with both of the things that you said, um, I think, but one of the things that... Um, I've kind of learned in the last year is that I got to a point at about four months, four or five months sober, and I was like, I can't do this on my own. Like, I just felt like I couldn't. I'd got sober and I was happy, but I hit that kind of four or five month lull where all of a sudden you're like, shit, I can't do this. Not that I couldn't be sober. I felt like I could be sober, but I couldn't deal with the um, the constant um, memories of stuff mm. that I've done and the the pain that I'd cause people and um just to be clear I haven't like really hurt anyone ever it's only ever been like emotional um mm. I've not like killed anyone or anything um, and, um good <laughs> yeah but um in, in terms that's of, another podcast that's a very different podcast <laughs> <laughs> why are we laughing <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I totally forgot what I was going to say. But um, you needed help thing, to to deal yeah. with the yeah the so, things that you've um, done. So I decided to go to AA because I felt like it was something that I wanted to to go and see. Um, and I have to say, I don't know whether I was just in the right group or what, but the one that, the specific one that I went to is very compassionate. They are very, um, they're very wonderful people. I don't go to AA and I don't work the steps. Um, I just decided that that route wasn't for me. But what I did do was um, when I did walk through the steps myself in my own time, I took out the bits that, that, mm. that worked for me. Um, and some of that making amend stuff, personally for me, 
I did do stuff. I did make amends to some people. Um, not I didn't I didn't go to a point where it meant that I was making amends to people where it could have either harmed me or them. Yeah. Um, which is actually one of the fundamental parts of that step anyway. Um, but I think that it's sometimes just about creating your own recovery and taking the bits that that make sense. Yeah, bespoke like one hundred percent. And that, yeah. I mean, we've, we've spoken about that on multiple yeah. occasions. There is no one one way no. to recovery. Um, no. And for me, uh, yeah, I totally believe in the self-compassion. But for me personally, I did need to hold myself accountable mm-hmm. because maybe um, I hadn't felt accountable for my actions for a really long time. So mm. I did need to punish myself for half an hour and just be like, <laughs> actually, do you know what? You were a dick. You did do yeah. this. Sure. Let's learn from it and move on. Yeah, and I'd say good for you for that as well, because you know, it's a big person who can do that as well. And if that was, you know, and and it's God, you've just made me think about um, that episode of Queer Eye, where. Do you remember when there was the gangster who's in the wheelchair? <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Do you watch Queer Eye? I, do, I don't think I've seen that one. It's the one amazing. that gets well, shot. And basically, yeah. they meet the one that in the wheelchair who does this, oh, I think, called Disabled, that. but not really. He meets yeah. the guy who shot him, and they have this incredible moment of when they they just they've thought you know they've built it up and they've built it up and it's like and I was so angry with you it's really holding me back and the other one was really and then once they were face to face it was like it just went and it was so incredibly freeing and mm. um, and I think that uh, I mean there is that there's in the science of happiness as well there's a big section on conflict resolution and, and moving forward as a kind of essential essential tools that we're actually not taught much about are we really no in many bit well who like i somebody that i know says never explain never apologize never explain is the mantra and i'm like that mantra sucks that's like yeah. that's not having yeah. a mantra is it it's like that's an arsehole yeah i mean i guess the, the key point that you said and i maybe this is where it, you know certainly got mixed in my head um is that it's you know any any making amends um is not to the detriment of yourself or to other people you know it's done through compassion and it's not like you know i i just i mean obviously like you know i i i i, I think i've always apologized and kate and i have talked about this before oh I yeah think, i was an over apologizer compulsive, yeah, compulsive anxious apologizer so yeah my, so part I think, of my recovery is learning not to do that yeah you know what exactly. I mean? it's like step away from the apology yeah it's like sometimes just be like oh you know what actually like um i don't need to sort of i think it's that people pleaser thing of like you know constantly wanting to make everything better and certainly for me yeah, it was like okay actually like I don't you know I was I was in a bad place and you know the person that I need to apologize to most is myself really Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to talk we wanted to talk to you a little about the sort of mental health aspects I know that's been a big part of your your story um where where do you think what came first I mean mental health or alcohol or, you know how does that all go together do you think do you have any kind of um yeah so I from a it, interestingly I've been sitting and doing a lot of writing and stuff recently and it's and it's really cathartic in that 
it makes you really sit and think about different subjects, especially when, as you, I can imagine you guys are, are going through the process at the moment as well with the book. Um, and, and obviously, like, I'm kind of giving myself topics that I want to write about um, for this charity and, and stuff that's really relatable to people. And um, I wrote something quite recently, and I actually realised by writing this piece that I was actually, like, suffering with anxiety from... I'm not even exaggerating when I say the age of three. Like, mm. when I really, really think about it, mm. like, I used to be on edge all the time um, about... It could be that, like, I don't know, I'd broken a plate by accident or whatever it was. And to be really clear, like, I don't come from a from a bad upbringing. Like, I've, I've come from a really lovely family that have all, always loved me um, and I've always loved them and I've always had a really strong relationship with, with my grandparents and, and my mum and my dad. Um, so it was never it was never from a place of um, fear of anyone specifically. Um, and yeah, like I just remember being anxious all the time. Like when I think back to my childhood, the, the memory or the feeling that I, I felt most when I think back is, is anxiety and fear. And over the years, obviously that, that gets worse. And I now realise that that anxiety actually came because I always felt like I was the odd one out. Um, mm-hmm. because from a really early age I knew that I was different and I didn't know what that different part of me was I couldn't explain it because you don't know what sexuality and stuff is at that point um, but you go through that process and you and you grow up and, and I was an only child as well so like quite a lot of my friends had siblings and I didn't have that and and, and as you kind of go through that process of growing up um, the anxiety kind of gets bigger and bigger um, and then you add in the shame as well, and all of a sudden you've got a really, really unhappy person. <laughs> um, and and so yeah, like by by fifteen or sixteen, I was coping just. And then I I, I went into fashion PR when I was eighteen, and about nineteen, I had what I would probably term as a bit of a mental breakdown. Essentially, um, I, I had to leave leave the job that I was in. And escaped quite quickly and went on holiday with my mum, just me and her, uh, for a couple of weeks, just to kind of clear my head and, and see what where I was. Um, and uh, yeah, it just kind of, I don't know, it got worse and then it got better and then it got worse and then it got better. And I went through cycles kind of going on antidepressants and then going to therapy and then stopping both and then going back on the tablets. And never, I've, never ever until last year did I finish a course of therapy. Um, mm. ironic because I mean obviously I needed it um, but it's weird because sobriety in itself has levelled me out but I'm by no means 100% normal in inverted commas in a, from a mental health perspective if anyone <laughs> ever is because I don't think anyone is um, and, and so like I did I went to therapy last year and I did like a uh, 8 or 12 week CBT course um, with talking therapies on the NHS, which was which was brilliant, and and um, but the one thing that kept coming up in every session was my drinking, mm. and it got to about week eight or nine, and the therapist actually said to me, she said, um, she was like, I believe that you need to be here. She was like, but I actually believe that you need to seek help for your alcohol problems before we continue any more work, because um, everything that you mention every single week is related to your alcohol. And until you fix that, there's no point in us doing this work because we're not going to fix what's really happening because you just keep basically going and doing it again mm. <laughs> or making it worse. 
Um, and I did, I finished the course, I finished up 10 weeks, but basically, um, I've, yeah, I've literally just signed back up for it. So I should get a date through sometime soon to, to go and do that again. But obviously this time I'll be stone cold sober and alert and, and ready to, to learn and actually take it in and, and move on. <laughs> yeah. Cause when, um, cause it's, it's always that, I mean, anxiety is quite, is the hidden, you know, it's a hidden illness, isn't it? And I, I think when, because when people meet you or online or, you know, if people know you from Instagram, it's like, you know, you do these funny memes and, you know, you've got this kind of like, kind of wit and humour, um, you know, and you're a good looking guy. And it's, it's, people don't see that anxiety, you know, and don't see those things. And, and, and to know that that's really something that you suffered with in a, in a huge way, you know, um, and and again, it's alcohol is just sort of the worst thing. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not a cure to stop drinking, but you know, it certainly helps to get a level. I think that's what it is. You know, it's that kind of like now you're on a level. Now you can do the work to kind of really manage your mental health um, when you give your mind a chance. Really, mm. um, yeah. I mean, I remember when we did, we did the club soda event. You know, it was very anxious yeah. do you know what i've got to say people really don't ever believe this but like i really even now i still am a very anxious person like mm. if i'm going to something where it means that i don't know everyone or it's even it, even if it is people that i know and it's a group of two two or more people i am beside myself internally and even when i'm there and i'm talking to people what people won't see is that I'll be worrying about whether I'm making too much eye contact with someone or I'm not making enough eye contact with someone. And it's almost as bad as what I was like when I was thinking about when I could have the next wine because mm. all I'm thinking about is, oh, God, I'm so socially awkward all the time. Is someone going to realise or are they not going to realise? And, and that's what's going through my head every time I'm in the company of anyone, really, apart from, like, my family. Do you do <laughs> any, like, yoga or anything like that? Like mindfulness and yoga? So not as much as I should. I do, um, I try to practice mindfulness in terms of, I won't get up and necessarily do it like every morning, for example, but I will try as much as I can through a day to just focus on my breath. Um, yes. And I do find that that helps. helps. Because, um, I mean, I don't know if you've both read Ruby Wax's yes. books around oh, mental health, one. and they are excellent. They're so accessible, aren't they? And they're just not... Yeah. Yeah, but I was thinking about that because, you know, I've been writing about that today and looking at the, I mean, I think the Buddhists call it, call it the Riti Chitra, which is literally yeah. monkey chatter. I love yeah. that. It's like on a matapaic, isn't it? It's like chit, 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 chit. Like that freaking voice that is like on and on and on. And it's mm. like the wine witch, it's the inner critic, it's the egotist it's like the no no i am looking fabulous darling i really am looking fabulous you know it's just that's this fucking constant isn't it that bloody voice well mine is and <laughs> and you just reminded me of it when you said you're sitting there and um i mean i i definitely can relate to that i think i'm better because i i do a shit ton of yoga and that's helped massively but i so i think people can so relate to that and mm. i think we often drink to shut that up Oh, um, towards the end, I actively remember sat drinking, thinking, let's shut this fucking voice up in my head. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not I'm even sure. joking. I used to do that. Mm. Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, 
oh god i'm really going on but i'm thinking about executive you know the, the bits in the brain right the frontal cortex here yeah. right so i'm very interested in it in the moment in terms of adhd brain because of my son and people um like the alcohol brain and ADHD brain look quite similar in terms of the executive functions are impaired and that's the ability to stop. As does the trauma brain. Yeah. As, as is the trauma brain. And then it's to engage visual memory. So to think back mm. and to go that that shit happened, then predict and go actually no, play it forward. That's a bit bad idea. Then you, inter- you engage the internal dialogue, which again, if you've been drinking shitloads, might be the wine witch. It's like, I need a bloody yeah. And, and then you are able to stop and generate a different option. And those are like the steps of every single day, working those steps to get sober, as far as I'm concerned. In those early mm. days, it's literally stop, think about it, think it forward, have a word with yourself, do something different. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But it's and interesting that's the... that internal voice that it's almost like we have to become aware of and live with in somehow and then manage don't we because otherwise it would drive you bloody insane yeah and i think it's also the the realization and that's why it's so great that we're having these conversations it's just like you know i, I mean I, those sort of things like you know when you we're sometimes when i'm when I'm in the metro, metro, God, I'm so European. <laughs> when I'm in the tube, so I was thinking it was in the paper. What you been doing now, man? <laughs> um, when I'm in the tube, like I have that moment sometimes where I get that rush of like, fuck, I'm gonna jump, and then I go, ooh, mm. no, I'm not, and I have to hold myself. I do that. Do you do that? So many, so many people jump do off that. A building feeling like I'm gonna run and jump off the edge of the cliff. I. Mm. No, I no. don't. I can't. Okay, that's that. That, 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 that. No, no, okay. I do. I do as well. <laughs> I was on the motorbike don't, yesterday. Don't, don't leave me in this. Like, oh, okay, no, that's just you, Mandy. No, but I have had conversations like that, or or the rushing of uh, of thoughts, or the like. You know, I can't stop that. Or when you, you know, you, you feel like you're talking, but you're what you're saying is coming out before you're ready and like you're trying to catch up with yourself because you're not sure of what you're saying and that kind of vulnerability hangover or that paranoia and it's like you live with all this by yourself and then you start having conversations and go oh right okay and that's again it's like all right well okay we're not normal but we're perfectly unperfect we're just a group yeah we're just a group of people that Mm. would be better without alcohol because we yeah. don't need that yeah. to you know yeah and in terms of your other. mental health Scott and definitely you know we've talked about it in terms of you know identifying as HSP as an, an anxious wired kind of system you know we are like walking antennas aren't we we just pick every everything up and yeah we need to learn those strategies to bring it down make it all go a little bit quieter and we're taught to do that with alcohol like you know yeah, yeah. and also just yeah <laughs> I think it's I think it's giving yourself permission in sobriety to do stuff that's probably a little bit outside the box and stuff that you wouldn't have done before in terms of like so for me like I'm a highly emotional person and, and I don't mean in the I cry everything I do cry everything but it, in a different sense in that like I tend to absorb I'm quite an empath empath mm. sorry and I absorb people's mood and emotion quite quickly 
and I get drained very, very quickly, depending on who I'm around. Um, and I think depending on where I'm at, if I'm happy or I'm sad and stuff like that, sometimes now I will rearrange that plan with a certain person because I don't feel like I've got the energy to be around them. And that's not that they're a bad person or they're um, not lovely and they're not a really good friend of mine, but actually I might need someone or something different at that point. Um, and it's about really understanding who you are and what triggers you and what doesn't um, and allowing yourself to do that. Yeah, 100%. And I think those are the things, you know, that's emotional intelligence and that's like knowing yourself and knowing your boundaries and knowing like how you're feeling. And, you know, I mean, I'm very lucky to be in a mum in some ways because I learned so much from now that I'm kind of woke as a parent, to use an American term. But, um, you know, now that I'm aware, I'll see things that they do, like that they need a nap or that they need a cuddle or that they need food or they just need to be left the fuck alone. And rather than kind of rushing through, like I stop with them now and go, oh, right, are you just, okay. And and I do the same for, for me. It's like, oh, okay, you just don't, I don't want to see any, I just don't want to see anyone today. And that doesn't mean I'm antisocial. It just means that I'm probably really tired mm. and that's you know or I need to put in a boundary there with someone yeah yeah on that I must say that what I can what I am guilty of sometimes is going the complete opposite direction and doing exactly what you just said Mandy and being like oh yeah I've, I, I, it's fine I'll just listen to my to my emotions and I just won't see anyone for four days and then all of a sudden I realise that I'm really depressed because I actually haven't had any contact yeah. and yeah. so it's again about like sometimes if I listen to my anxiety and my depression mm. then I will isolate myself and mm. I yeah. like I feel quite I feel quite like it at the moment actually I've not really done enough in terms of um going out and uh, talking about sobriety in terms of just with friends and stuff um and and um and I think that like, you need that connection uh so it, there's a very fine balance for me and sometimes mm. I'll lean in one direction way too heavily and then realize that I'm alive <laughs> but the, but yeah. the, the, well, the wonderful thing is that you can pull yourself back now yeah. you know it's like like we're no one's perfect we're never going to be mm. perfect you know I mean I've I've still I mean I had another you know very bad period when I was sober in the fact that I got completely overwhelmed and I literally ran straight into a wall not literally but a wall of life mm -hmm. and I had a like a, a little mini breakdown and I was terrified of what I might do you know and so was my husband and it was it was and you know I was sober but I was about sort of six months in and I still there was still loads of learning about yeah, what, where I was at. So it's that kind mm. of like touchy-feely thing, isn't it? It's just like, oh, okay, no, no, mm. pull it back. It's sort of recalibrating, like try yeah. this, oh no, I've lent too much that way, I need to come back this way. Yeah. So mm. that sort of balancey thing. But, but yeah, you are so, right. I mean, community is is key. Yeah. yeah, 100%. So what's what would your tips be for people starting out? Um, oh, I feel like that was a lovely segue. I think connection is 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 definitely the is the first thing. Um, I think so for me. Like obviously, I started boy who drank too much, and it was never. I didn't realise that it was about connection. That's not why I did it. I just did it because I needed someone to hear what I had to say about my journey. Um, and then um, and I, and that then meant that I met people like you guys. And I mean, yeah, it would have been a year a year maybe next week or the week after because I was only two or three weeks sober when, when I came to the Love Sense meetup 
Um, and I think that that was definitely a defining moment for me in that yes. I saw that there was all these other people that were sober and, and that they were happy. Um, and they weren't just happy. They were not only normal, but they were still cool. And they weren't, um, like, I don't know, I had this vision in my head that when I got sober, I'd have to wear a cardigan all the time. And <laughs> you, just, I'm like, sure you look fabulous in a cardigan. Yeah. Well, so I do have quite a lot of cardigans, actually. I do like them, but... Um, I just, I don't know, I, I just assumed that my life would be over and uh, yeah. that who I was would, would change. And that's true. I have changed um, for the better, hopefully. Um, but I think that it's really important to have some connection. Um, and then I think the other thing is just immersing yourself in sobriety and um, making sure that whether it's that you're listening to podcasts like Love Sober or others, um, or you're reading books about it, or you're even when you look through the newspaper now, like there normally is at least one article or a line or two about sobriety, and just finding them and reading mm-hmm. about them and researching about alcohol and 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 just kind of immersing yourself in it. I think that when you do that, it starts to develop your brain and and you start to really take it all in and and it starts to make a little bit more sense and and then you start to see that it's possible and you can start to build your life the way that you want to and what would be your um your top book or couple of books that you really like you know um I've probably got three so the the, the first one would be the unexpected joy of being sober um I think it's that again that and the love sober podcast were the two kind of turning points for me in terms of getting me from pissed to sober um and um then the next one that I read when I was ready was um, This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. Mm. And, and I, I think it's quite interesting. And, and when people contact me on Instagram or email me or whatever, I always recommend The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober first because I feel like it's quite a nice intro and it's quite digestible and it's funny and it's relatable. And then This Naked Mind, I would probably say that you should read that when you're maybe about three months in because at mm. that point you're kind of over alcohol and you're ready to kind of become like this sober warrior and basically hate everything about alcohol and, and everything that you yeah. for. And this naked mind basically does that. It makes you like, fuck alcohol, fuck the world. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you do kind of, I mean, I got, I did a, a, a celebrity meme about it actually, Beyonce, and it was like, um, <laughs> like preaching about sobriety. Um, because you do, you go through a phase where you preach and and now I think about it and I'm like oh god that's so cringe why did I do that but um it was part of my process um part of the process I think we're still doing that aren't we now we're like like years (laughs) on the side Uh, and another thing (laughs) I like recite I I, like recite my preachy things like about when I'm cleaning I'm like on GM GMTV yeah you pretend it's like your Oscar BBC breakfast yeah well I'm just like and mothers and mental health and blah blah that's that's how I spend my time Sorry, and, third third one. Third one. Yeah. and then my third one is um is recovery by Oscar Brand because regardless of whether you choose the AA route or you don't, um it's a digestible way to understand the steps. Um and they're way more relatable. And especially for a lot of people that are thinking about recovery, um what scares them off of AA or the AA route is the mention of God and a higher power. Um and if you that if that does worry you because you're not religious or whatever, then Russell Brand's book makes that a lot more digestible as well. Um, Interesting. 
Yeah. I would say that it's definitely worth a read, regardless of whether you go down the AA route, because there's a lot of stuff that I learned in there about me and about Russell Brand, which is always fun. Um, <laughs> and um, and I think it's really important to get different viewpoints. And his is a very extreme viewpoint in terms of where he was, because obviously he was heavily addicted in drugs, alcohol, and sex. Um, mm. And he shares some incredible things about his life. And whilst I don't choose AA for me. If AA works for someone that was in that much pain, then there must be credit in it somewhere. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And um, I've said that a lot this evening. I've got to stop saying one hundred percent so much. But anyway, um, I went to Paris, oh, darling, last week, and um, I met up with a couple of She Recovers um, coaches that work in addiction services and. Um, go do the the steps and you know that's been their path to recovery and it was really really interesting and very um it was very warming actually because there seemed like we were having a conversation that was about collaboration and it was like you know I've come from one point you've come from another you know rather than let's keep sort of sort of you know not fighting but kind of like um moving away from each other you know this is all the same conversation look, look for the and, similarities not the differences yeah and just that's an phrase i know and what was really interesting was talking about you know the the severity of addiction you know and, mm. and when you're looking at alcohol abuse or alcohol dependence then there certainly are different things that are relevant and different we were talking about it the other day, weren't we? That of kind of how much control or lack of control you need uh, in yeah. terms of getting well, um, and the structure that the you flexibility need. of thinking or structures. Yeah. yeah, and and so there's definitely you know it's whatever works, mm. and mm. you know the patchwork of tape bits that work for you, you know, it's it's absolutely what we would advocate for sure. Um, tell us a little bit about. Um, your plans and the things you've got coming up uh, for the boy who drank too much because I know I've um, seen a sneak preview of your new website so yes yeah so the website um the first version of the website is live now um and that is uh basically just a bit of a uh, this is all the stuff that I've done so far um because I get quite a lot of questions and stuff from people asking um, what my thoughts are on different subjects and whilst I would love to sit and answer every single person in lots of detail it's a lot easier to just say here's here's what I've done so far you can go and read or listen um, so that's what it's there for at the moment but um, there will be another version over the next couple of weeks where um, basically what I want to try and do is, is create a bit of um, a space where people will find some resources to help them out um, in their journey um, and they will all be from lived experience so it won't be um, anything um, medical or um, I'm not a coach or a therapist or anything so I, I always make sure that when I'm talking to someone specifically that I kind of put that disclaimer out there um, but it will be like a basically my curation of what helped me and what got me to where I am now um, and hopefully people will find that useful um, and then over time, I'll start to build on that and, and make it um, probably a bit more of a community and see where it goes. Amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to, to cover before we finish up? 
Uh, no, I think we've we've covered a lot. Okay, so what's your tip of your tip of the day and your reason to love sober? My tip of the day is um, just be kind to yourself. I think that um, even now I'm guilty of not um, being kind to myself. And and one of the biggest things that people beat themselves up about when they message me on Instagram is that they often start with something along the lines of, I really want to have what you have, um, but I just can't do it. Or I really want to have what you have, but I messed up at the weekend and drank three glasses of wine. And I think that you need to just be kind of yourself what I would say as a disclaimer is obviously if you're dependent then massively I would advise to seek medical advice but if you're not and this is just a choice that you want to make as opposed to maybe a, an actual medical concern um, then then just be a bit kinder to yourself and at some point it will click and you will get what you need and things will work the way that they're supposed to um, and just keep trying really. Mm. Yeah, and, and what's your reason to love sober today? Um, I, th I think it kind of is again the connection and the people that I've met and the I don't know like having conversations like we've just had for the last nearly an hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah. think that, like I never would have had conversations that, that were this um, meaningful and and has had so much depth that I imagine quite a lot of people will be able to relate to. Um, and and that is, that's, that's crazy for me because sober sobriety has given me everything. Like it's given me everything I ever wanted it, wanted and I'm only just approaching one year. So I can't wait to see what's going on. Yay, we can't, yeah. we can't wait to see what comes next as well. <laughs> well, we better wrap up then, hadn't we? yeah thank you so much thank you so much it's been thank such a pleasure to speak speak with you and thank you for sharing your story with us and i'm you know, sure you help and inspire lots and lots of people like you do already you know so keep shining crazy diamond so. <laughs> <laughs> okay so if you're immediately concerned about your drinking um please do reach out get some support um, on Soberistas, it's a confidential ask the, or ask the doctor service. Uh, alcohol change may have um, agencies of local support for you, um, GP, or any of the online communities, just reach out. And like we've talked so much today about connection and community, you're not alone and just reach out and take that first step. And lots of love and we see you next week for more chat. Bye. Bye-bye.